Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast. This is the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPAGAN. I'm Jen Lee. I'm Peter Liu, and we're pediatric gastroenterologists from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And I'm Jason Silverman, a pediatric gastroenterologist at Stollery Children's Hospital in Alberta, Canada. This special episode of Bowel Sounds is for the pediatric GI community and is to help communicate the most relevant, current, evidence-based information on the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, and its associated disease, COVID-19. The past few weeks have been crazy, right? With the emergence of COVID-19 in December, its development into a worldwide pandemic since that time, And it's obviously had a huge global impact and it's impacting all of us, no matter where we are in the world and how we practice as pediatric gastroenterologists. And also really, I'm sure for all of us, it's had a huge personal impact too in how we worry about our families and friends and our communities and our own health. Absolutely. You know, but before we get into it, we'd like to give a shout out to everyone. Those of you who are working, um, everyone from grocery workers, childcare, teachers, small business owners, and of course, all of us in healthcare that are called to be in hospitals every day or in clinics. Thanks to everyone for working to flatten the curve, uh, for helping spread prevent the spread of this disease and and just for for the impact that we know this is happening um, this is having on you uh, none of us have seen anything like this and around the world people are standing together working for each other uh, before we get to our topic we do have several disclaimers for this episode first off kind of like Jen mentioned at the top we just want to make it clear that Uh, this episode will focus on how COVID-19 affects the pediatric GI community. If you're looking for general information about the novel coronavirus or COVID-19, you are in the wrong place. There are many good sources of information available, including the websites of the CDC or the WHO. NASPGAN has a great summary page of links to valuable sites and resources at naspagan.org slash COVID-19. We'll put a link to that page in the show notes, and many of the resources that we're going to talk about today are available linked to that page. We also want to recognize that information about COVID-19, both in terms of spread and our understanding of the disease, have been growing at an incredibly rapid pace. So this is recorded on Thursday, March 19th, 2020, and it was just last week that um, Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz shut down the NBA um, after he's found out of coronavirus, after he jokingly touched a bunch of microphones. Anyways, as the, so as the new data emerges, you know, we may look back and the discussion we have today may no longer be relevant or accurate, but we're going to do our best to really base all the information we talk about on information from public health authorities, NASPGAN, other pediatric and GI societies, and on the uh, published literature that we have thus far. All right, Peter, rough estimate, and please be honest. In the last few weeks, how many times have you referenced the NBA? You know, everyone has an event that made this mm-hmm. catastrophe seem real in their minds. And to me, may have been the NBA shutting down. I don't know why the I realized that. Lakers are on track to maybe winning another championship. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Moving let's on. move on. On to the show. Let's start by talking about what we know about SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, especially how this virus and the disease causes effects in children. So Peter's homework was to review the literature available on COVID-19. So Peter, can you start by telling us about the novel coronavirus and how it all started? 
Sure. So as we all remember from our pediatrics training, so coronaviruses are in general are pretty common, cause respiratory symptoms, found in about 8% of children with respiratory symptoms in the outpatient setting, and about four to six of children who are admitted. However, these common coronaviruses, coronaviruses can mutate, leading to novel coronaviruses like the viruses that caused SARS in 2003, MERS in 2012, and now COVID-19 in 2019. So COVID-19 was first identified as a cluster of pneumonia cases in Wuhan, China in December 2019. And um, actually by early, at the start of January in 2020, the coronavirus was identified in BAL fluid from a patient from Wuhan, and then it was confirmed as the cause of this disease. And as of today, um, COVID-19 has spread to over 160 countries. There are over 200,000 infections now and over 8,500 deaths. Wow, that's incredible. Um, yeah, and actually, I think one of the new things with this virus is that have you have you seen some of these tools for tracking this COVID-19, like ArcGIS? I think my favorite's been the one put out by John Hopkins, where you can really see in nearly real time the updates of the cases. There are yeah, a number of that's these. right. There, mm-hmm. There's a number of these, and we can put a po- couple of links in the show notes for those trackers, too. Um from a population health perspective, having data analytics visualization tools is helpful for understanding the spread of the condition for sure. Oh yeah, I really agree with that. And um, But I do think it's important for us to kind of talk a little bit about how it affects our patients. So Peter, can you go into how COVID-19 affects children? Sure. So there have been several, uh, actually a number of like very recent publications on how uh, COVID-19 affects children. And as we all know, um, even from early on, it does seem that children are more likely to be asymptomatic or to have mild symptoms compared to adults. And in a study that just came out earlier this week, but that's been all over the news, you know, there was a case series of uh, 2,143 children with confirmed or suspected COVID-19 that was published in pediatrics. So just the takeaway points for me were that, so it shows that children of all ages can be infected. However, you know, 5% of children had more severe disease, which they defined as like pneumonia and associated dyspnea or hypoxia. Uh, Less than 1% developed ARDS or respiratory failure. So both are lower than uh, in adults. But it does seem like young children, especially infants, are more likely to develop severe disease. So in that series, 10% of infants and 7% of children one to five years of age had severe or critical disease, meaning that they were hypoxic or developed respiratory failure. So just because they're young does not mean they are not susceptible to this infection. And one encouraging thing in some ways is that over of the over 2,000 cases um, in their series, only one child died from the illness. However, obviously, it's important to remember that children were generally tested if they had symptoms. So there have to be many more children who are asymptomatic and never tested. Yeah, I mean, I think testing-wise, the testing that they were looking at were primary, primarily nasopharyngeal, but I think important, an important point for us gastroenterologists is that the viral RNA can really be detected in stool, including in children. Can you talk more about that? Right. So there have been a few studies that, that have looked at that. Um, there was one smaller case series of children with confirmed COVID-19 that showed that stool samples from five of six were positive for viral RNA in the stool, and they remained positive for up to a month after the illness began. And in another series of both children and adults, over half had positive stool tests, and almost half of those with positive stool tests continued to have positive stool tests even after their NP swabs were negative. And so even though um, the possibility of fecal-oral transmission has been brought up, it's not something we know yet. 
I think that's a really important point. Until we know for sure, we need to take precautions in case fecal oral transmission is possible. Oh, yeah. And especially because a lot of these patients have GI symptoms. Yeah. In a uh, study that I think just came out a couple of days ago in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, um, in a series of about 200 adults with COVID-19, it seemed that almost half had quote unquote digestive symptoms like anorexia, diarrhea, and vomiting. Anorexia was the most common of those symptoms, but diarrhea was present in 29%. And interestingly, seven of the 204 had digestive symptoms, but no respiratory symptoms. And uh, they did find that patients with digestive symptoms tended to present later than those with only respiratory symptoms. Finally, it looks it also looks like COVID-19 can affect the liver. And so there have been a number of studies that have shown this. Some showing that about a quarter up to a half of adults with COVID-19 can have abnormalities on their hepatic panel, including transaminase elevation, although typically that was found in, in patients with more severe disease. Before we kind of move on to the guidelines and what to do, Peter, can you briefly summarize everything that you have found? Sure. Um, okay, so to summarize, even though children generally have less severe disease than adults, um, all ages can be affected, and it does seem infants and younger children are still vulnerable to more severe disease. Uh, the virus can be detected in stool even weeks after the illness begins. And even though fever and respiratory symptoms are the primary presentation of COVID-19, nearly a third can have diarrhea and rarely patients can have GI symptoms without respiratory symptoms. Yeah. So it's more important than ever for us specialists to also think about the presentation of COVID. Um, so since we've covered the symptoms a little bit, let's move on to what we can do. There have been many statements for the general public and for healthcare workers. Jason, you've been monitoring these guidelines really closely. Can you walk us through some of those specific to gastroenterologists? Sure. Within the last week, we've seen statements coming out from a number of GI societies, and maybe I'll just take a few minutes to walk through what has been released so far. On March 15th, a joint GI society message on COVID-19 was released by the AASLD, ACG, AGA, and ASGE. It's a short statement, but generally covers what is known about COVID-19 that is relevant to GI practice. This includes a brief summary of the typical symptoms of COVID-19 and the GI signs and symptoms mentioned by Peter, including highlighting the viral shedding in stool and elevations in liver enzymes seen in 20 to 30% of patients. There are then a series of 13 recommendations for GI endoscopy in clinical practice. Some of these are common to other statements as well, so I'll just walk you through them. Yeah, and it's also important, I think, to recognize that while these are society and national guidelines, so all of our institutions our individual institutions are also developing their own guidelines as they try to, you know, grapple with this, with this pandemic. Yeah. And they're often derived from the same literature, but it, there can definitely be a disconnect if the local organization interprets something in a different way. So just as a quick example, the Department of Health and Human Services put a statement out that different video platforms like Facebook Messenger and Google Hangout video can be used for telehealth, but every organization may not choose to support those platforms. So it's really best to check with your individual institution before using these platforms or uh, really about any of these guidelines. So anyway, Jason, uh, let's kind of go through some of those recommendations. First, can we talk about our highest risk of exposure endoscopy? First recommendation is to strongly consider rescheduling elective non-urgent endoscopic procedures. Yeah, so that aligns with the Surgeon General's advice from uh, March 14th. And there's some flexibility here. I mean, it seems like the chances are high that the institution um, individually will be drafting guidelines for each each person. But there definitely are some patients that should still have endoscopies during this time. So, Jason, can you point out what the guidelines say about those patients? 
Right. Well, for the patients that, despite uh, you know putting off the less urgent procedures, for those ones that you're you're still going to have to proceed with, the first is to look at pre-screening all the patients that you are seeing for high-risk exposure or symptoms. Yeah. So asking about fever, respiratory symptoms, family or close contacts with those symptoms, a contact with a case of COVID-19 or travel to a high-risk area. Oh, but keeping in mind that rap- with the rapid spread of COVID-19, the importance of specific travel destinations may be diminishing over time. Right. True. And, and once your patient is there, you should also be checking their body temperature upon arrival at the endoscopy unit or clinic and keeping all patients at an appropriate distance from each other. So six feet or two meters apart while waiting. Uh, in the endoscopy suite itself, make sure appropriate PPE is available. And we'll come back to this uh, one when we talk about more specific guidance from other societies and groups about when to consider higher levels of protection. Yeah, we'll also post the CDC's guidelines on this in the show notes. But in the meantime, don't forget, gown first, mask, goggles, and gloves. And then when you take them off, you go kind of reverse. It's gloves, gowns, goggles, mask, last. I was trying to think of something catchy for that, but I had a hard time. Yeah, so it's not it's not exactly reverse. No, you're right. Gloves, gown, goggles, mask, backwards. Makes sense. All right. Makes sense. I, I will say here, though, that conservation of PPE is critical. Right. So this has been a real concern in uh, most, if not all, centers as the demand of protective gear has begun to outstrip supply. And so that means limiting personnel to those essential to the task only. Um, in many centers, this is having an unfortunate effect on excluding learners, but we do have to acknowledge that priorities may need to change during the time of this pandemic. And this is also getting at both uh, avoiding simultaneous exposures to multiple individuals with the same training, so not potentially needing to isolate all of your gastroenterologists at the same time, um, but also deploying those staff that may not be the best in the best position to help with the procedures to other areas, such as screening or performing performing virtual visits. Um, Jason, what about elective office visits? Can you walk us through that? Well, for elective office visits, the recommendations are to consider offering these remotely via telemedicine to reduce the numbers of patients in the office, but also to provide care to patients that are less willing or less able to travel. And it's certainly something that we're doing in our institution. And I think, again, like you mentioned, Jen, uh, every institution or clinic is making their own policies around how best to offer those remote visits and uh, how to adapt the regulations, you know, the HIPAA guidelines about which tools are uh, to be used. And, and sometimes those rules are um, more flexible in the setting of a pandemic. Um, it's important to address our collective staff needs and institute policies that are, protect our workforce. So some clinics are allowing maybe administrative or support staff to work from home and, and dial, in, uh, uh, dial in from there if they're still able to, to do their jobs. Yeah. And I was, uh, you know, contacting some patients I have scheduled for clinic tomorrow and I was feeling a little bit bad that I was calling them to cancel or postpone. But I think in reality, you have to remember, this is really to protect the patient and the family, especially for immunosuppressed patients. Patients on immunosuppressive drugs should continue taking their medications. The risk of disease flare outweighs the chance of contracting coronavirus. I'll just add that this also echoes the advice of both Crohn's, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America and Crohn's and Colitis Canada. Both groups state that IBD patients on non-immunosuppressive drugs, uh, such as 5-ASA, have the same risk as the general public. And while immunosuppressive medications potentially raise the risk of infection, again, the important thing is 
uh, the important to remember is that the risk of a flare of a disease is higher. Yeah, that's right. The two IBD societies and the Joint GI Society statement all recommend that these patients should also follow the CDC guidelines for at-risk groups by avoiding crowds and limiting travel. And I'll mention again that links to the IBD-specific information can also be found on the NASPGAN COVID-19 site, which we'll link in the show notes. There have been uh, a few other key publications in the past week that I think we should just mention uh, the first was an article that was published, I believe it was from out of Italy, that was uh, titled uh, Coronavirus or COVID-19 Outbreak, What the Department of Endoscopy Should Know. And so that group published, kind of based on their experience and available data, some of their protocols in uh, deciding when to do an endoscopy and what precautions to take. For sure. In their paper, the authors also go through a discussion about patient screening and risk stratification of patients. They also make the case for more advanced PPE for at least some patients and procedures. Yeah. And I think another thing, just to kind of go back to the background a little bit that we should probably just state is that COVID-19, so just like any other coronavirus, is spread through contact with large droplets, so usually from coughing or sneezing. However, in certain conditions, especially with certain kinds of procedures, there's concern that those secretions can become aerosolized leading to more airborne transmission, at least within a short distance. And while traditionally aerosolizing procedures have generally been felt to relate to airway interventions, such as intubation or bag mask ventilation, the authors of this paper make the case that upper endoscopies are high-risk procedures as they potentially generate aerosolized secretions from the GI tract. Because of this, the authors suggest a graduated approach. Patients considered low risk can have procedures done using PPE that includes a surgical mask, hairnet, goggles, single-use gown, and gloves. But for intermediate risk patients, the authors suggest treating gastroscopies as high risk, and I'll describe the PPE requirements on this in a moment, and colonoscopies as low risk. For high-risk patients, PPE is stepped up a bit. Here, the authors recommend essentially N95 or FFP2 or FFP3 respirator masks, hairnet, goggles and or face shield, water-resistant gown, and a minimum of two pairs of gloves, one worn over the cuff of the gown. I'll point out here that there's still discussion about this between GI groups and our infectious disease colleagues about the importance of the potential for aerosolization during endoscopic procedures. So I'm sure there will be much more written about this in the near future. Uh, Stay tuned, but again, follow your local guidelines. And the authors of that study also go into significant detail on endoscope processing and importantly, like room decontamination after the procedures. I think it's worth a read, at least simulate some discussions and think about how you can apply it to your own endoscopy practice. Last one, the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology released a statement, which was already updated once on March 16th, 2020. And in this statement, also linked in the NASPGAN COVID-19 page, The authors highlighted the GIE article from Italy that we were just discussing, and they reiterate the need to risk stratify patients and wear appropriate PPE. The authors depart from the previous paper by stating that given the community spread among asymptomatic individuals of COVID-19 that has been seen in several countries around the world, that all upper endoscopic procedures should be considered high risk. I'll point out again that the authors acknowledge that N95 masks may be in limited supply, and this may vary by site. So each institution will have to decide for themselves on the criteria for essential GI procedures but they do not suggest easing up on the requirement for adequate PPE, even in the face of supply shortages. Yes, I guess the the takeaway would be, you know, if you, so if you can't do all the procedures that you're doing with a very careful approach to personal protection, 
maybe you have, we have to cut down on how many procedures that we're doing. Yeah. Cut down on procedures, try to do telemedicine visits, um, and really protecting ourselves and our patients. So given the evolving and fluid nature of the situation, institutions, hospitals, and clinics have also been formulating their own local guidelines. So we really urge you to follow the evolving CDC recommendations and your local requirements. The language there sounds familiar. Oh yeah, I copy that. (laughs) (laughs) I I actually copied that and meant to remove it and then just totally didn't. So that's probably not... It's very eloquent. You can say it's a direct quote. Yeah. It's okay. It's a direct <laughs> quote. It's it's it makes sense. You know, in my role in informatics, I've been involved in a lot of hospital preparation for uh, coronavirus, and it's been really incredible to see these see everyone in the hospital in all different departments come together and really put together these things very quickly. Um, I think the same thing has been happening nationally with all these guidelines coming out. It was a matter of just days to weeks before they came out, and they're really helping us to inform some of the decisions we make every day. I do think it's important that the personal protective equipment um, limitation or what what, what is it? The uh, shortage. The shortage. Yeah, that word. <laughs> <laughs> so the shortage of personal protective equipment, I think, is a huge problem. Yeah. Um, and not just personal protective equipment, but uh, ventilators, other types of equipment that we may need. And so I'm not sure the solution to that, but, you know, right. just recognize that our hospitals may be doing all they can to provide us, but they just may not exist. I do think that, especially for those who are on the front lines being asked to put themselves in harm's way, potentially increasing the risk of their families getting uh, this coronavirus. I think it's important that everyone takes care of themselves, not physically, not just physically, but also um, mentally and psychologically, especially when we have all this news coming at us about how how it's all going to get worse and the economy is going to go down. I think in the end, there is some hope, I think, from looking at some of the earlier countries like China and South Korea and Taiwan, where um, cases are going down. So there, there is an end Um, We just have to kind of get through this part and not let it, you know, break us down. Completely. And, and I think the only thing I want to tack on is, um, you know, Jen, you mentioned about the, the amazing ability that you've seen in your colleagues to step up and throw themselves into these efforts. One of the things that I've seen locally, you know, all of our med students have been pulled off of clinical rotations and pretty much every medical school across Canada, the the medical students that would have otherwise been on clinical rotations have stepped up and set up uh, volunteer programs to help out with childcare for uh, healthcare workers who have lost their childcare options because all of the childcare, uh, licensed childcare facilities are closed in a lot of places, schools are closed. And so they've stepped up and offered to watch people's children or do groceries or, or uh, do deliveries of other, other things. And that's just their way of trying to help out their community, help out their peers and their, their colleagues. And beyond that, I, I think I'd encourage other people to sort of also step back a moment and think about how other people are being impacted. Um, older adults that are being Sort of recommended to almost shelter in place and think about how are they going to get their groceries? How are they going to um, uh, get uh, medications that they need? Um, and so consider if you have the time um, 
take the time to spend, you know, 15 minutes, half hour, whatever it takes to go out and, and do what you can to help those people as well. I mean, sure. I think there's so many takeaways from this time, right? Like, yeah. you know, f- you know, for example, I think it's an incredible example of how social media uh, can be used for good, right? So being able to hear from frontline people around the world immediately, you know, that's incredible. I, I feel like other past crises like this, it's not been like that. You know, even like the Facebook groups that we have with, you know, for physicians and other um, advanced practice providers, um, you know, hearing their first line of accounts, I think that goes a long way in helping us understand like how severe things are, but also what are things that we can do and, uh, you know, things that they've learned through what they've been through. It's kind of cool. We hope that that was useful to you all. Like you, we are working our way through all of this and wanted a way to share what we've learned and make you guys feel that you have a support in the GI community broadly in getting through this. Uh, if you like the episode, give us a shout out online or drop us an email at bowsounds at naspigan.org. Naspigan is putting together a statement from the society that they will be releasing and putting on the Naspigan website and will also be published in a future episode of JPGN. A future uh, issue? Wait, issue? Issue? A future <laughs> episode. I'm like binge watching too much Shit's Creek. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bow Sounds and on Facebook at, at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and are subject to change with advances in the field, especially this episode. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks, everybody.